0: You know, Corey, I don't spend my time going around promoting the podcast. In fact, I feel like I don't even bring it up very often, but there are opportunities here and there to bring it up, especially when people make comments about how crazy the world is right now. And I've actually found that using this podcast as a tool to help introduce others to these topics has played out better than perhaps I expected it to. Like usually when I start talking about any of this, and I bring up collapse, and that there's all these aspects of society that are unsustainable, and there's some really difficult things and decline ahead of us, people almost take a little step back, right? Or they nod their heads, but seem very skeptical. And I understand it, because as you remember, I was quite skeptical. But for those who actually do go start listening, usually I hear them come back with statements like, wow, this is eye-opening or this is crazy. This is a lot to think about. And it's really making me realize that I want to be better prepared or I want to make steps to not contribute to these problems so much. And I'd say generally people who have listened to it that are within my social circle will say something like, you know, there's some parts I don't agree with, but most of it I think is really sound. And if I were to put a percentage on it, it seems like it's usually 80-20. Like, yeah, I agree with 80% of what you're saying, and it's alarming, it's terrifying. 20% of it, I'm not sure what I think, or I disagree. But I'm yet to find anybody who I've talked to who has listened to it, who just says flat out, like, oh, it's all garbage. No, we're totally fine. The claims that are being made here are nonsense. Yeah, it's funny as a
1: side note, I'll mention that I've only directly... Resulted in one other person listening to the podcast, and that's my brother. But I feel like you, for whatever reason, just comes up in conversation a lot with people you know. It seems like you're every week you're telling me about somebody new who's listening to it that you know, or like how a friend of a friend reached out to you and was like, "Hey, I'm listening to your podcast," and I have one person. (laughs) Uh, It's just kind of funny because we have you know we've got thousands of listeners every week, but we really don't like you said promote it to our friends and family hardly at all. But I I bring that up to mention that I had the same experience with my brother who mentioned probably something similar as far as numbers. Like, yeah, I agree with most of it. There's just like this one part that I don't know enough about to feel like I can really say whether or not I agree with it. And from the feedback that you've gotten, I, I am pleasantly surprised at how people react for the most part. And I'm sure maybe some people are just being nice, right? They don't want to be like, I disagree with everything you're saying and your podcast sucks. But I think it's just interesting to see that a lot of people agree with the overall ideas around collapse. It's just maybe the word collapse, right? This idea of you guys are doomers, that sort of thing that turns people off to it. But if people would just look at it logically, look at the actual issues. You know, if we had named our podcast something different about sustainability or something, we'd probably attract a whole different audience. And it wouldn't really be anything controversial. But because we talk about collapse, there's this stigma around it. But what we find is that when people actually listen to the podcast, they say, like you said, oh, yeah, this totally makes sense. I agree with what you're saying. You guys aren't all that weird. You
0: know, it makes me very grateful for everyone who does listen. I'm glad to hear that these conversations are providing value for others in helping them become more aware and informed and motivated to make personal changes in their life that will make the future a little bit brighter for them personally or for their personal circle. And I'm especially grateful that many of our listeners are engaged enough to say, hey, I love that you talked about this. Can you also talk about this? Or I want to learn more about this topic and how it relates. So along those lines, we've discussed infrastructure in general in the past. But there has been some interest for us to dive a little bit deeper on specific topics within the broader umbrella of infrastructure. So today we've chosen to talk about dams and bridges specifically. And we've mentioned in the past that the word infrastructure has so many different definitions. But it's nice that dams and bridges are something that almost everyone can agree fits within their definition of what infrastructure is. But if you look at infrastructure as a whole in the US, if you'll remember the report that came out from the Army Corps of Engineers gave the United States a C minus. And when we think about this in terms of collapse, why it matters. When you get dam failures or bridge failures, you're talking about potential disruptions to supply chains, disruptions to like energy, you know, that we get from dams if there's failures during a time of crisis it can cut off evacuation routes it can cause danger to citizens you think about how impactful the failure of a bridge can be or what can happen to a lower elevation city when a dam bursts and all of this is in the face of like extreme weather events and other natural disasters and the fact that our infrastructure ages it has an expiration date and it has to be maintained and it has to be continually propped up with more resources and there's a serious cost to that and we can't necessarily afford to keep so much infrastructure maintained as we continue to grow and in the face of catabolic collapse there's a lot of implications there. So anyways that's a long way of saying that this is a really important topic especially as we understand more specifics about our infrastructure and I know we'll touch on what this means globally and we'll be able to share some
1: information for what we see here in the U.S. Yeah, if you go back to that episode on infrastructure that we did, we talked about the different grades that are on that report card. You just mentioned we're at a C- minus overall in the U.S. And just as a reminder of what those grades are, an A grade would be exceptional, fit for the future. B is good, adequate for now. C is mediocre, requires attention. D is poor and at risk. And F is failing, critical, unfit for purpose. So on average, when you add up all of our infrastructure in the U.S., being a C-, minus, we were on the low end of mediocre requires attention, bordering at being poor and at risk. And obviously, you know, some things are going to be higher than that. Some things are going to be worse than that. That C- minus is an average. And so each piece of infrastructure has its own grade in this report card. In that episode, I mentioned that I could not find a single state with any piece of infrastructure at an A, meaning there's pretty much no infrastructure in the U.S. that's classified as exceptional or fit for the future. There were very few that were a B, meaning even good or just adequate for now. The majority were in the C and D range. Dams, which we'll start with, and that's where the bulk of my research lied, was rated as a D. So on average, the U.S.'s dams are poor and at risk. I'm going to read the description of the D category in the report card. It says this infrastructure is in poor to fair condition and mostly below standard with many elements approaching the end of their service life. A large portion of the system exhibits significant deterioration condition and capacity are of serious concern with strong risk of failure. So that's the classification of a D score in general. Getting a little more specific, and again, at the beginning of this, I'm talking strictly about the U.S. I will get to global conditions here in a little bit. But there are more than 91,000 dams, both large and small, in the U.S. That could be compared um, globally. They believe there are some 16 million or more impoundments holding back water with at least a surface area of 100 square meters, which is about 1,000 square feet. So I don't know exactly how that compares you know those 91,000 dams are they going as small as even just a 1,000 square feet i'm not sure but that gives you a general idea of the number of these structures that we're talking about across the world 16 million is just crazy globally there are around 60,000 large dams and a large dam is something defined as having a wall higher than 15 meters which is 50 feet to think about you know a five story building there are 60,000 dams at least that big. And it's crazy to me to think about if everything stopped moving today, if society just stopped functioning. Then out there in the world, there are 60,000 dams holding back a 50-foot wall of water that would eventually break down and fail without proper maintenance. But what's even more absurd to me is that, you know, society hasn't stopped moving and yet we still have so many dams that are subpar. You know, they're hazardous because they aren't currently being maintained properly. And so it feels like, you know, apparently society doesn't have to come to a complete standstill in order for us to neglect these massive pools of death. You know, when I travel, when I drive around, I don't feel like I'm seeing
0: dams left and right. So for me to think that there are that many dams and that that many of them are that large, personally, it's eye-opening.
1: Yeah. And it's especially crazy when you consider how many of those dams are considered deficient, because I'll bet not only are there more dams than you'd expect, but there are more that have the potential to do a lot of damage and are not in good shape. So dams have different classifications based on their potential for damage. So one classification is significant hazard potential, which means that there's potential for a lot of economic damage, but not necessarily loss of life. And of those 91,000 dams in the U.S., 11,000 of them are considered significant hazard potential. But what gets really crazy is that there are 15,600 dams That are considered high hazard potential, which means if they failed, they would cause both extensive economic damage as well as loss of life. So there are more of those dams than there are of just dams that would cause economic disasters. Over the last 20 years, the number of high hazard potential dams in the U.S. has doubled. Well, hold on. Let me
0: make sure I heard that right. You're saying in the last 20 years, so we're talking post-year
1: 2000, the number of high hazard dams has doubled? Yeah, it has, which is funny because the number of dams that are being built is slowing down. So what's happening here is that dams are being reclassified. And the reason for that is that we are growing so rapidly that we're building suburban areas downstream from these dams. So previously, those dams may have been considered significant hazard potential dams because they were going to do a lot of economic damage to farmland and rural areas. But now they're considered high hazard because if they were to fail they would result in a loss of life due to the new cities that have been built below them. Yeah. So what you're saying is there are people in danger areas that weren't there before. That's right. And so it's due to primarily just the insane amount of growth that we've had. I think part of it as well is that they're running out of places to build dams. So when they need to build dams, their only choices are to build them in more high risk areas. It's important to note that a high hazard potential dam doesn't mean that it's at risk of failure. It just means that if it were to fail, that would be the result. But when it comes to the number of high hazard potential dams that are considered deficient, 2,300 of them are. So that's approaching one in six of all high hazard dams in the U.S. are considered deficient. And there was different definitions of deficient, they said, based on the state. So there wasn't one solid way to say, here's how we classify something as deficient. But it signifies that it needs rehabilitation repair in order to be considered safe. Something else that I thought was interesting was that of all the high hazard dams, only 80% have an emergency action plan, which is basically, here's how we would evacuate. If it failed, here are the exact steps that we would take. Like, it seems like if you're going to build this multi-million, hundred million dollar dam, you would put in place like a pretty simple (laughs) plan about what you would do if that dam were to fail. But it's crazy to know that only four out of five have those plans in place. One of the big issues with dams is that they're aging, and they're aging rapidly. Um, From the report card, this is what it said. The average age of our nation's dams is 57 years, which, by the way, I saw a few different ages ranging between 57 and 64, so it's somewhere in that range. Anyway, it says, by 2030, seven out of 10 dams in the United States will be over 50 years old. The high average means that the majority of dams will not have been built to current standards, let alone incorporate newer standards that improve their resilience and reduce the risk to downstream areas. Furthermore, at the time of their construction, they may have been considered low hazard potential, so they may not be able to withstand the increasingly frequent and severe weather events or other natural hazards like earthquakes. So there's a couple things with that statement that are interesting. The dams are aging, and the majority were not built to high enough standards, so that likely means that the number of deficient dams will continue to rise dramatically over the next few decades. And then another interesting thing mentioned there is that at the time of construction, many of these dams were considered low hazard potential because they were in rural areas, thus they were built to lower standards. So those dams that we were just talking about that have been reclassified, they were built to lower standards because they weren't necessarily meant to have to be strong enough to protect people. But now we've put people in the downstream and haven't necessarily reinforced or made those dams more safe. So it's estimated that there is current need of more than $66 billion to rehabilitate the nation's dams. The report card said that without specific funding programs, many dam owners cite lack of funding as the reason maintenance and upgrades are deferred. As of 2019, over half of U.S. dams were privately owned. The remaining dams are divided among a variety of owners. Among them, 20% are local, 4.7% are federal, while an almost equal figure, 4.8%, are owned by states. The smallest share of dams, 2.4%, are held by public utilities. Identifying dam owners is critical, as funding rehabilitation and repair falls to them. So we talked about this a little bit in the infrastructure episode, but it absolutely blows me away the number of dams that are privately owned. Yeah, I remember from our previous conversation, you had told me about a dam
0: that had failed. And if I remember right, it had caused like hundreds of millions of dollars in damage. And it was all because it was privately owned. It was a couple of guys who had purchased it as a tax write-off or something like that. And they didn't really have any incentive to put the resources, the money into maintaining it. And so then it caused this massive failure. And to think that there are all sorts of dams out there that are just privately owned, and that it's possible for somebody to just neglect that, that there's no one really enforcing the kind of maintenance that we need to prevent that from happening. That's just
1: mind-blowing. Yeah, we'll actually talk about that that dam specifically here again in a little bit and dig a little deeper into that. So I'm glad you brought that up. One thing I want to point out first is that number, that 66 billion dollars, you know, that's how much money is needed to bring dams up to where they need to be. And $66 billion simultaneously sounds like so much money and also not that much when you compare it to just everything else. But I think the issue here, the reason that we're not just funding that, we talked about in the infrastructure episode about how more than $5 trillion is needed just to get all of the U.S. infrastructure up to the level of B, just to make it adequate. So how do they decide where to put the priority of that funding? We don't have money for all of it. You know, Joe Biden just passed the $1.2 trillion infrastructure bill, and only a fraction of that goes to the types of things that you see on the infrastructure report card. So what becomes the priority? Where do we put the money? Where do we put the resources? And when you look at the amount of money being awarded to you know, dams and dam owners as grants to help them financially to maintain upkeep or rehabilitate their dams, it is very small. There's a program that came out called the High Hazard Potential Dam Rehabilitation Program that was funded at less than point one percent of the need estimate. <laughs> so it wasn't even one in a thousand of what was needed at ten million dollars. It was a quarter of its forty million dollars authorization. So they've been authorized to receive forty million. They received ten. they needed sixty six billion. And, you know, that's only the current state of dams. Every year, dams are going to continue to degrade further and further. More repairs are going to be needed. And like I said, by 2030, seven out of 10 dams are going to be older than 50 years in the U.S. So going back to the issue of private ownership, it's terrifying to me to think that more than half of dams are owned privately. Private owners tend to act in personal interest, the extraordinarily high financial cost, To preventing a relatively small chance of a catastrophic failure just doesn't align well with private entities priorities with their pocketbooks, you know, if they're heavily insured, which most of them are going to be, they feel protected behind their lawyers and all that, that the cost what they would end up actually paying in the event of a disaster would likely be less in the cost of just repairing it. And they believe that the likelihood of a failure actually happening is really low. So they don't do anything about it. And this was evident in the failure of the Piney Point wastewater reservoir into Tampa Bay that we spoke about previously. You know, that wasn't a dam, but it caused a lot of issues because that reservoir was not maintained because a private entity did not want to pay for the upkeep required. But you just referenced the, the dam failures in Michigan. So it was actually two dams, um, the Edenville and Sanford dams. That was in May of 2020, and they were privately owned by someone from out of state. They were basically neglected, and in the end, the failure resulted in 2,500 structures destroyed and over $200 million in damages, which by the way, only 10% or so of the homeowners that had structures destroyed had flood insurance. So 90% of them were just, it was a complete loss for them. If the dams had been repaired beforehand, the cost was estimated to have been around $35 million. And so not only was there $200 million in damages to existing property, but now it will also cost a further 200 to $300 million to repair those dams. So because they waited and didn't do the repair beforehand, that $35 million repair turned into a $400 million catastrophe. And, you know, when you extend that out to the $66 billion that we need to fund it now. It seems like if priority isn't made on that, that $66 billion could balloon into you know a trillion dollar catastrophe. Yeah, that's
0: one of the things that has worried me the most as I've looked into some of our infrastructure issues. It's just that principle that it takes less effort and less cost to maintain something early on than it does to try to repair it or try to make significant upgrades after it's degraded further. I mean, you think about it from like a healthcare perspective. If you do preventative care to take care of your body, it's going to cost you so much less and have so many less negative consequences than if you let things go too far and then try to fix it.
1: Yeah, it seems like the same is true with really any sort of maintenance, you know, you get your oil changed in your car so you don't have to replace your engine, that type of thing. But some people are cheap. They don't want to pay the $40 or whatever every three months to have their oil changed, and they pay a pretty steep price in the long run. So these uh, dam failures in Michigan, they also give some really good insight into the complexity behind why dams don't get fixed. Because while I still do primarily place the blame on this individual who bought the dam in 2006 as a tax shelter which I mean, that, that that's the biggest problem to me, right? But there's some other issues here. You know, he claims that overregulation kept him from maintaining public safety and that he wasn't able to get any federal funding for repairs or maintenance. So obviously, if you buy a dam for financial reasons to protect yourself financially, you should probably like make sure you have the financial ability to upkeep it. That should all go into the ROI of your decision. Uh, If you can't make those financial obligations and still make a profit on your venture or whatever, then don't do it. It doesn't seem right to purchase a dam and then expect the government to pay to fix it for you so that you can continue to use it as a tax shelter. So that, that part is just obvious and very frustrating to me. But his other point is interesting because he's claiming that he wanted to lower water levels in order to keep it safer. He tried to lower water levels in the past, but locals demanded he kept water levels high so they could go boating on the lakes. And apparently the state actually sued him just weeks before the failure because they said he was lowering the water level too much, which was hurting local mussel habitats. So his lawyer is claiming that he was trying to keep people safe and that the government was putting the environment over people's safety and property safety. So it's kind of this weird mix of everyone blaming each other. There's a lack of funding. You know, we're putting one need over the other. And in our bureaucratic government systems, it really is no wonder to me that these things aren't fixed before they become a disaster. Because, you know, we've talked about the lack of funding. That's one thing. But then there's these conflicting priorities. And in some ways, perhaps private owners are being restricted by what they're able to do because of that regulation by the government, you know, for things like environmental protection, which is also very important. In the end, had he paid to repair the dam like he should have, it wouldn't have mattered. Both the environmental side would have been fine and the people would have been safe. But it goes to show that it's not always simply black and white. There's a lot that goes into it. So since 2010, there have been 250 reported dam failures. And obviously not all of those are going to be large dams. Most of those are small dams that maybe don't cause much damage or any loss of life. And another 500 incidents were caught and managed right before imminent failure. So just in the last decade. And experts believe that more dam failures will occur in the coming decades and that there's going to be an increased loss of life from those failures. So let's shift now and talk a little bit more about this from a global standpoint. So earlier I mentioned there are some 60,000 large dams globally. Those are the ones that are at least 50 feet tall or 15 meters of those dams, experts believe that some 19,000 of them are over 50 years old. So that's nearly one in three. And some of the world's largest dams are at significant risk of failure. You know, the U.S. dams being at an average age of, of 55 to 65 in global terms is pretty low because of how young the U.S. is. Um, for example, one article mentioned the 125-year-old Mola Perriar Dam, which I'm sure I just pronounced that wrong, Nestled in a seismic zone of the western Ghats Mountain in India, this 176-foot-high relic of British imperial engineering cracked during minor earthquakes in 1979 and 2011. I'm reading from the article, by the way. It says, according to a 2009 study by seismic engineers at the Indian Institute of Technology, it might not withstand a strong earthquake larger than 6.5 on the Richter scale. Three million people live downriver of the dam. And then it goes on to talk about how repairs or emptying of the dam are being held up by this long-running legal case, government bureaucracy, so nothing is being done to help fix it. There's another one called the Kariba Dam, built by the British on the Zambezi River in southern Africa 62 years ago. Back then, it was seen as Africa's equivalent of the Hoover Dam, but in 2015, engineers found that water released through its floodgates had gouged a hole more than 260 feet deep in the riverbed causing cracks and threatening to topple the concrete dam, which is 420 feet high and holds back the world's largest artificial lake. So this is just a massive dam holding a massive amount of water. And downstream are some 3.5 million people, as well as another giant dam that engineers fear would probably break if hit by floodwater from the upper dam. Despite the urgency, the $300 million repair work won't be finished until 2023 at the earliest, So at least that one's being worked on. And you know, one part of this article talks about that it's currently being worked on to fix that dam. But another part mentions that we simply do not have the technology at this point to be able to fix that dam. It was built 62 years ago, just absolutely massive. But the problem is so grand that not only do we not have a way to fix it, we also don't have a way to decommission it. So another article, um, this one published in the Yale School of Environment talks about how uh, and I'm quoting the potentially dangerous mix of structural decay, escalating risk, and bureaucratic inertia is growing in the world's dams. So they're quoting from a study that shows that the number of failing dams is growing dramatically across the world. While the average age of dams in the U.S. was around that 55 to 65-year range, the average age in the U.K. is 106 years, and in Japan, it's 111 years. You know, the last time that we talked about infrastructure, we discussed that report from the
0: Army Corps of Engineers, but I've noticed right now you keep citing so many different sources that are all saying the same thing about how dangerous this state of our deteriorating dams is. And I've thought about it from that perspective of what is happening in the United States. But when you talk about some of these other examples outside of the United States, and especially ones that are so large like that with so many... Millions of people that could be impacted, it definitely paints a scary picture
1: for what's to come. Yeah, I believe the article mentions somewhere that it's in the hundreds of millions of people that live downstream of these dams globally. And in so many countries, there's such a lack of reporting, of enforcement, of regulation to really know what is happening with each and every one of those dams. And if things weren't bad enough with just the current state of dams and the fact that they're going to be deteriorating as they get older and we're not doing enough to reinforce them or rehabilitate them. Then we got climate change, which is currently exacerbating the problem and which is going to escalate dramatically as we continue to warm. You know, climate change is creating these just intense rainwater events. That's overstressing the dams beyond what they are originally designed for. And due to climate change and some other factors, experts say that China and India are likely to be the most hard hit by dam failures in the coming years. Again, that Yale article says that both countries have in the past suffered dam failures that killed tens of thousands. In 1979, the disintegration of the Machu Dam in Gujarat, India during a flood killed as many as 25,000 people. Four years before that again, I'm going to slaughter these names, the Banqiao Dam in Henan, China, burst sending a wave of water seven miles wide and 20 feet high downriver at 30 miles per hour. It killed an estimated 26,000 people directly, including the entire population of one town. As many as 170,000 more died during an ensuing famine and epidemics. So we're talking about nearly 200,000 people that died as a result of a dam burst. This disaster has been called the deadliest structural failure in history, and it was kept a state secret for many years. And one thing I want to point out here really quick is that when we're talking about dams and collapse, right, a single dam failure causing even deaths like this, 200,000 deaths, is not necessarily collapse, right? But it's the continued failure of multiple dams, the impact that the failure of these dams has on other infrastructure, the impact that it has on economies, and the fact that overall, these dams are in disrepair further and further. And again, like I mentioned earlier, the consequences of collapse on dams itself. If society were to collapse and the ability for us to pay for repairs just completely went out the window, while we're going through catabolic collapse, we're also going to be dealing with the impacts of multiple dam failures happening at different times. In terms of collapse, a certain number of people dying, even if that number is very high from a dam failure, doesn't necessarily mean that collapse is being caused by that failure, right? But when you consider what that wall of water can do to other infrastructure, like bridges and roads and transportation to private property, the money and resources and time and all of that required to clean up after that mess. And like Kellen alluded to earlier, with catabolic collapse, we're simply going to be having access to less and less time, to less and less money, and less and less other resources. Going back to China, you know, it has around 24,000 large dams, all just in, in China built largely in a time when economic expansion was more important than engineering prowess. So the two dams that failed that we just mentioned, they were only 20 and 23 years old, respectively. They were young dams, but the problem was they were not built adequately to support the amount of water that would flow through, especially in times of flooding. And as climate change intensifies, these rainfall events will likely cause dams to be stressed to such a level that emergency releases of water will be required which would flood towns and villages, you know, or outright failure could occur, which will destroy entire cities. You know, this happens currently, this has happened in the past, where a dam reaches a point where it's in danger uh, of failure. And so authorities will say, we have to release, do an emergency release of some water, knowing that that is going to impact people. It's going to kill people. It's going to destroy property. And, And I believe there was an example of this happening just last year in China. I don't remember where it was. But the decision was made in order to save a dam, we're opening up the floodgates and it just decimated people below. Okay, so I've been talking a lot here. Um, the last thing that I want to mention is that another issue that results in the failure of dams is a lack of staff required for inspections. So we already know we're in this weird time of like, labor shortages, a very competitive labor market. And this was an issue since before this. So this is only going to be exacerbated, but it's creating this massive backlog of both inspections needed to be done and repairs needed to be done after those inspections are completed. The Oroville Dam, which suffered damage to the spillway in 2017, and that almost resulted in dam failure, which would have been catastrophic for thousands of people living downstream in California. Um, It's one of California's most important pieces of water infrastructure. But that dam was found later to have structural deficiencies that were missed because of a lack of proper inspection. And, And it's crazy to think about, to me, you know, we live in the USA, which is supposed to be, you know, this country that just has its stuff together you know, it's what people consider a first world country. And yet we're so unable to simply inspect infrastructure frequently enough to be able to detect these types of things. And then again, I go back to, you know, some of these countries where, you know, they might be in a constant state of civil unrest or war. And there's all these dams in the background that who knows what's happening with them. I, you know, highly doubt they're getting the sort of inspections, maintenance, upkeep that they, that they need to be getting. All right, man, we get it. We're having problems with dams. So you might say we're having some damn problems. (laughs) Oh, we're going to put the explicit tag on this one now. Totally worth it.
0: You know, as you're describing all of this, it makes me think about some years ago when my wife and I were looking for a home. People warned us and said, you want to be cautious about purchasing a home that is 30 years old. Because at least according to them, they were saying... At around 30 years old, that's when everything starts to break. That's when you have to replace the roof, and that's when you have to replace certain appliances or the furnace or air conditioning or whatever. And you had mentioned, I think at least in the US, the average age of these dams was 57 years old. And you know, when it comes to bridges, 42% of all bridges in the US are at least 50 years old. And it kind of makes sense because in the last 100 years, our Global population has roughly quadrupled. So you get this huge spike in population. I think back to like the New Deal and all the new infrastructure that was put in place several decades ago. And now it's kind of all lining up that these structures are reaching the end of their life cycle unless they're maintained. We're just in a time where we suddenly have to do all this maintenance that we might not have had to worry about for the last few decades. A lot of what you've said about dams is relevant to what's happening with bridges, and so I won't go into quite as much detail, but because we make such an effort to be well-rounded and present the full picture, I do want to mention a couple of good things. You know, bridges that are being built today are being built to last longer than they were in the past. So the American Association of State Highway and Transportation Officials now requires new bridges to to be designed with a 75-year service life. And in the past, it was a 50-year service life. So at least we're getting better. and We're getting better methods for checking bridge conditions. We've got new technologies. And we're even beginning to embed sensors so that we can have continuous feedback on structural conditions. And one other thing that I think is good, an improvement that's happened relatively recently, is that it's federally required for there to be a plan, at least in the US, for states to manage their inventories when it comes to bridges. They call these plans TAMPs. So that's Transportation Asset Management Plans. So I think over time, we are getting better and smarter at the way that we build bridges, the way that we monitor them and maintain them. But it's now time to talk about the bad
1: news. You're telling me we only got like 30 seconds of good stuff and you're going to dive right into the bad?
0: Hey, what do you think this podcast is about? (laughs) All right, so I'm going to focus on the United States in some of this data because we have that really detailed report from the Army Corps of Engineers, but a lot of what I'm talking about here is a similar situation, if not a worse situation in many other parts of the world. So I mentioned that 42% of all bridges in the U.S. are over 50 years old. We've got 617,000 bridges across the United States and 46,154 of those which is about seven and a half percent are considered structurally deficient that means they're in poor condition and 178 million trips are taken across these structurally deficient bridges every day and those numbers are actually low depending on what parameters you put and who's measuring it. According to the American Road and Transportation Builders Association, more than a third or 220,000 of the bridges in the United States need structural repair, rehabilitation work, or replacement. So that's not to say that every time you're about to cross a bridge, you need to hold your breath and be really worried that it's going to collapse. But that report card from the Army Corps of Engineers, they give our bridges in the United States a C. And similar to what you talked about with dams, we need a lot of capital, a lot of money and resources put toward repairing and maintaining these bridges. But it seems that there's just not enough to go around. So here's one statement, and all the articles that we're citing from, as always, we'll try to make sure we include those in the episode description, but this says, At the current rate of investment, it will take until 2071 to make all the repairs that are currently necessary, and the additional deterioration over the next 50 years will become overwhelming. So at our current rate of repair, we're in big trouble. And we know that there's going to be an increase in extreme weather events. We're seeing that happen more and more as the years go on. This other statement from this article says, Nearly 21,000 bridges were found to be susceptible to overtopping, which is a term for when water comes up over the top, just like it sounds, or having their foundations undermined during extreme storm events. In seismic regions, earthquakes are a significant threat, and a bridge's ability to withstand these extreme events is a significant safety issue. What's interesting, as I state some of these numbers about all the work that needs to be done on bridges and all the risks that are involved, there's actually less bridges that are being defined as structurally deficient than there were... A handful of years ago, but that's simply because the criteria has changed. So I'll read just one more statement here. Two measures that were previously used to classify bridges as structurally deficient are no longer used. This includes bridges where the overall structural evaluation was rated poor or worse condition or with insufficient waterway openings. The new definition limits the classification to bridges where one of the key structural elements, the deck, superstructure, substructure or culverts are rated in poor or worse condition. So it's saying that based on the new definition of what is structurally deficient, it says there are 6,533 bridges that would have been classified as structurally deficient in 2017, but they're not anymore.
1: So it's not like the condition of those bridges has actually changed. They've just moved the goalposts on what they're saying is deficient or not.
0: Yeah, that's exactly it. And so, like I said, not that Every time you're about to cross a bridge, you should be worried it's going to fail at that moment. But we are moving in that direction. And similar to what you said earlier about dams, if we don't make the maintenance now, then it's going to be that much more difficult and costly later to do so. You know, I'm looking at a Wikipedia page right now. It's interesting. It's called List of Bridge Failures." And it's just a place where somebody has set up that they can track all the bridge failures that have happened over time and that continue to happen around the world. There's subheadings within the Wikipedia article based on different timeframes. For example, you can look at bridge failures that happened in the 1800s or from 1900 to 1949 or 1950 to 1999. But as I look at the section for the last 21 years from the year 2000, to the present, I can just scroll through this long table of bridge failures. And some of the descriptions for why they're failing, sometimes it's because like a large vehicle or boat crashes into it. Um, Other times, like here's one that says, collapse during repairs, comma, erosion. The next one, erosion, dilapidation, damage due to 2017 earthquake. Another one says, heavy rain, landslide. Another one says, the structural audit has been conducted in an irresponsible and negligent manner. Another one says the bridge was in a dilapidated condition. Another possibly had become too heavy and needed to shed load. All right, so you get the idea. There's a number of factors at play when a bridge fails, but the gist of it is that there are a whole lot of bridges out there that are structurally deficient, that we're not putting enough budget toward fixing, and that are just being kind of attacked by severe weather events. And even if it was perfect conditions, they still are just getting older and older. And so I think about how this lines up with everything else that we've got going on, all the other places that we need to put our resources, the resource depletion and the lack of resources we have in the first place, the issues caused by climate change, all of this combined gives me the impression that in the coming decades, we are likely to see more and more bridge failures. And like you mentioned, dam failures.
1: Yeah, in the infrastructure episode with catabolic collapse, we talk about how there's a maintenance cost to capital and how capital is basically just infrastructure. And bridges just seem to be one of those pieces of infrastructure that are an absolute necessity. We're going to keep building bridges. We have hundreds of thousands of them that we're going to continue to use. And the loss of a bridge represents the loss of an entire roadway. You know, if if a bridge goes out, there's no way to pass that road. And so, Losing a bridge represents so much more than just the monetary cost, right? Or sadly, the people who lose their lives, you know, driving across it when it fails. It represents a serious hit to our supply chains, our ability to transport things around the country. And it represents a continual nagging sort of requirement of upkeep, maintenance, and money. You know, a dam is one of those things that just sits there and can sit there for decades without any maintenance, without any repair, it can be completely neglected. And it's not noticed until the moment that it fails. But it seems like the bridges require sort of a continual upkeep all the time, because they're continually being used, they're constantly being degraded, you know, with every truck that goes over it, or whatever, you said there's 178 million passes per day on these deficient bridges alone. And so it's, it's not really a bill that I feel like can just be ignored. It's one that has to be paid when it comes due. And so the two main issues that I see with bridges is, again, one, the issues that can happen when they fail to supply chains and critical transportation infrastructure. And two, the continued strain that this puts on our budgets, you know, financially, but as well as just the demand on resources, As with all infrastructure, catabolic collapse is just going to wreak havoc, and it really makes me nervous. You know, I wonder what year is the Army Corps of Engineers going to come out and say, it's all an F. (laughs) You know, like bridges, F. Dams, F. Everything is an F. Because it feels like at some point, we're just going to reach a point where there's a critical failure in it all, because we're we're not maintaining it. And that cost, like you said, is going to rapidly get to a point where it's just simply not doable and my guess is that we'll just be putting out fires we'll just be patching the dams that are in imminent you know a threat of failure and we'll be repairing the bridges that aren't drivable meanwhile dealing with the inconveniences to our supply chain you know increased costs for longer routes and and that can all have ripple effects on an economy it can have ripple effects on EREI of energy and and all of those things
0: Yeah, you know, it's interesting. We recently recorded a bonus episode for those who support us on Patreon, where we talked about oil prices and what's happening there. And one of the articles that I came across as I was researching the state of our bridges was kind of advocating for the additional funds that we need so that we can make these repairs that need to be made that we're not currently making. And the proposed solution was to increase The taxes that are included on our gas prices, which I think makes sense. From the perspective of, you know, hey, we don't have enough money for this. Let's just hike up gas prices a little bit more, take a cut of that and use it to fix all of our bridges that are failing. But I think whether that proposed solution ever gets accepted or not, we are going to continue to see the cost has to come from somewhere. And it feels like we're on borrowed time to some degree. And so at some point we, like you mentioned, have to pay that bill.
1: Yeah, it's interesting because I feel like people would ask the question, like, what is the solution? Like You guys are talking about all these problems and, you know, we're talking about raising taxes to try and raise more money, to try and fund the repairs, but, you know, the taxes won't be enough and, and no one's going to be happy about taxes. No one's going to want to pay them and they're going to get shot down and it's never going to happen. So what is the solution? And I think, you know, I would say there isn't one. We've, that's the nature of catabolic collapse. We've built up this massive system that has to be supported by just And absolutely wild amount of infrastructure. And it's the absolute perfect example of catabolic collapse that we cannot afford to update, to maintain, to repair our infrastructure, and keep it literally from collapsing. In the coming years and decades, we will no doubt see an increase in the deterioration of our infrastructure we'll see more bridges fail, we'll see more dams fail, we'll see them go into more and more disrepair and the consequences of that. And in future episodes like these where we dig into other types of infrastructure, I'm sure we'll come to the same conclusions. I did want to mention in regards to dams, you know, there are a lot of things we didn't touch on, you know, the the environmental damage that dams do, the harm that it does to local or indigenous cultures, that type of thing. I wanted to keep... This one more in regards to the consequences of actual dam failure and the future impacts of catabolic collapse. But that may be something that we bring up again in the future, um, you know, the negative impact environmentally that dams can have. We appreciate you for tuning in. Thanks so much for listening. And we look forward to another episode next week.